Welcome to Mainly History, your go-to podcast for conversations about mostly Maine and mainly history. I'm your host, Ian Saxe. During the pivotal era of Reconstruction following the American Civil War, the histories of Maine and Mississippi converged in the person of Adelbert Ames. The Maine-born Civil War hero served at first as the military governor and then later as the elected civilian governor of Mississippi between 1868 and 1876. During his time in office, African Americans in Mississippi achieved major expansions in political and civil rights until a reactionary campaign of terrorism and violence ended Ames's administration and Mississippi's experiment in multiracial democracy for nearly a century. In this episode, we'll speak with a historian of Black Mississippi in the post-war era about the struggles and aspirations of formerly enslaved people who made up the bedrock of support for Ames's administration and what changes they hoped he would bring. How did Ames and his supporters try to build a coalition to expand freedom for former slaves? What did they accomplish? What challenges did they face? And could Ames, the last Republican elected in Mississippi until the 1990s, have succeeded in preserving real democracy in the state? And if there was a way to stop domestic terrorists from overthrowing multiracial democracy, that knowledge could be relevant. Let's do this. My guest today is Shanette Garrett-Scott, currently Associate Professor of History and African-American Studies at University of Mississippi. Shanette, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me, Ian. It's so great to have you here. Oh, thank you. To begin with, Reconstruction, despite its importance, often gets short shrift in, in public schools, and many Americans don't fully even understand what you're referring to, what people are referring to when they talk about Reconstruction. In general, just to, to give us the basics, when and what was Reconstruction? So I do want to say that I think one of the reasons that Reconstruction is either you know, ignored or really misunderstood is because for a long time, it was shrouded in this kind of lost cause narrative. And so Reconstruction is this period kind of after the Civil War, but some argue that Reconstruction really kind of begins in the middle of the war as the Union has more and more victories. And uh, this process of reconstructing or changing the South begins to occur in the midst of the war. But typically, Reconstruction is understood as this period from the end of the Civil War in 1865 to about 1877, after the election of 1876, when all federal troops were withdrawn from the South. And there kind of was a gentleman's agreement between Republicans and Democrats that the Republicans would leave the South alone and allow it to control its own affairs. Some people, you know, even push Reconstruction up into the early 20th century with the emergence of Jim Crow 
and this really the solidification of Jim Crow, but typically it's 1865 to 1877. Okay. Many of my students tend to assume that after the American Civil War, then in, in states like Mississippi, the transition was from, for Black Americans, generally a state of, of being held in slavery, right to a, a legal status that modern Americans think of as Jim Crow segregation. And then, of course, they say, then there was the civil rights movements in the 1950s and 60s right. and today, <laughs> to which, of course, historians like myself, but then in particular you say, da, 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 not so fast. Right. So then how does Reconstruction break up this narrative? When I teach about Reconstruction, I really talk about Reconstruction as this missed opportunity, mm-hmm. uh, a missed opportunity for the United States to fulfill, you know, its democratic promises. This is a moment when there is this opening for freedom and opportunity for African-Americans. And so it really becomes kind of a promise denied because the meaning of freedom for African-Americans really comes, is really in contrast to the meaning of freedom for others, in particular Southerners who really want to turn back the tide on gains that African-Americans have made socially, politically. And for African-Americans, it is a time when they are searching for family and pursuing education because there's a strong link between freedom and literacy. They're also building institutions, the growth of churches and church networks and community institutions, and also the search really for land and African-Americans looking for uh, economic autonomy, control over their own labor, the hope of having land. All of these things, community, family, land, forms the basis of uh, freedom uh, for African-Americans. And this, of course, flies in the face of a country that's really grappling with issues about social equality. And also like to remind students that, you know, it's not just the South that's really grappling with what does freedom mean and what does it look like, but the North as well. So even though the Civil War is fought, especially African-Americans really turn uh, the war toward a war for emancipation, the Northerners who are against slavery, that's not necessarily meaning that they're for social equality. And so, again, this is just a really, it's a dynamic period. It is, um, it has a lot of moving parts, a lot of different interests. And, and it is a challenge to try to teach it in, say, a one or two week chunk in a class. So I think that many professors and teachers just try to give a quick overview and move on to what they might see as more important periods in history. But i do believe that Reconstruction is really a pivotal moment when you have this opening where America can finally show its commitment to the founding ideals of the country. But of course, it is an opportunity lost. And it'll take another hundred years before African-Americans are able to get any kind of justice with the modern civil rights movement. Ooh, that is a great recap. Thank you for that. There's a lot to unpack. You mentioned that there were a number of strides forward. We'll start by talking about some of those and, of course, focusing on your own current home in Mississippi. Nationally, of course, as you well know, Reconstruction resulted in three constitutional amendments, the 13th Amendment that Mm -hmm. 
that ended slavery, except for cases of somebody who commits a crime. Right. The 14th Amendment guaranteeing, well, a lot, but also citizenship for everybody born here and equality for the law. And then 15th Amendment saying race can't be used to disqualify people from voting. But on a local level, in states like Mississippi in particular, there was a whole host of on-the-ground advances for especially Black Americans, but also many just poorer Americans from all walks of life. I'm glad you pointed out that Reconstruction is a, a national project, and it's historians like Kate Mazur have been doing some great work on that. But Mississippi is, is a great place to talk about because, of course, the project of Reconstruction depended on Black support. Very much so. Part because I believe Mississippi, except for South Carolina, I believe Mississippi had the highest mm -hmm. percentage of the population that was African-American at the close of the Civil War. Very much this is a project of, of Black people supporting this political project besides benefiting from it. In Mississippi, just after the Civil War, when a Mainer, Adelbert Ames, became military governor, Black Mississippians made up a majority of the state. And so what were the, the sort of short-term economic and political goals, especially of Black Mississippians, but then also perhaps some Mississippians who had not supported the Confederacy and who looked mm -hmm. to a governor like Adelbert Ames for assistance? Well, I think that you are you know, right on for mentioning the Reconstruction Amendment because they are part of this federal effort to try to reconstruct or remake the South. And in addition to that, we also have the passage of the uh, Reconstruction Act because the South, a Southern state uh, who had you know, recently been in arms against the Union, really resisted coming to terms with the end of slavery. And so the federal government forced the South, they kind of divided it into these military districts and the federal government put union officials and soldiers over these particular districts. So Adelbert Ames, he was appointed provisional governor of Mississippi while he also served as governor of the fourth military district, this district that had been established by the Reconstruction Acts. And it included you know, Mississippi and Arkansas so you can imagine that he, he was quite distasteful uh, to former uh, Confederate Mississippians and even some Unionists too, partly because they felt that this was a real incursion, you know, federal power into the state. So they felt that Ames was forced upon them. They see him, I think, as really the ultimate carpetbagger. And that's really a derogatory term, what Southerners used to describe these Northerners that they felt were flooding into the South to take advantage of the South, threw all of their belongings in a carpet bag and came down South to take advantage uh, of the South while it was its weakest. And he also was not very popular because he, of course, openly supported Black suffrage and civil rights. I need to make clear that just because he advocated and supported Black suffrage does not necessarily mean that he also supported social equality with African-Americans. So Northerners, that is the tension uh, with Norman abolitionists and abolitionist-minded right. folk, uh, is that they wanted an end to slavery, but not necessarily social equality with Blacks. So I really see Ames's efforts as really self-interested. He mm. wants to build up the Republican Party in one of the strongholds of the former Confederacy. 
And so he's appointing people who are loyal to him and who are supportive of this new order. And knowing, of course, that Mississippi has a black majority similar to uh, South Carolina, he definitely comes out strongly supporting suffrage and civil rights for African-Americans. And I'm glad you mentioned here civil rights, because I think modern audiences don't always necessarily get how civil rights might be different from social equality, such as it is. And I I think it's important for us to understand how 19th century Americans, black and white, understood those terms differently. So if somebody was like Edward Ames for civil rights, but not necessarily for social equality, what might that mean? You can get a sense of his commitment. So so I really believe, you know, like I said earlier, Mm -hmm. that his commitment were to building up the Republican Party mm-hmm. in this stronghold of the Confederacy. And so that you, he's appointing people who are loyal to him. That, of course, includes uh, African-Americans. He is appointing African-Americans uh, also on the local level for positions like justices of the peace, um, mm. for example. Also in you know, expanding African-Americans' uh, service on juries. For example, so these are some of those civil rights that are really important. And in fact, he's using local sheriffs to help maintain these balances, for example, on juries, trying to make sure that they're equal, maybe with like six whites and six blacks. And I do have to say that even these kind of modest efforts at just trying to come to some kind of rough equality with his political appointment, trying to put African-Americans in some offices, also other uh, white Republicans. He was often considered radical, even within the radical Republicans. (laughs) And I think that is because in a place like Mississippi, where you have a Black majority, he is, of course, opening up these avenues for political and community power for African-Americans that if it even you know, makes uh, some radical Republicans a little nervous. And so there is, you know, even a division within the Republican Party in Mississippi by, by some people who feel that he's just a little bit, you know, too radical, pushing what they see as Black suffrage and, and, and Negro domination um, onto Mississippi. So, of course, in, in 73, when he runs for governor in a contest against Alcorn, who's the more kind of moderate part of the Republican Party. I mean, this Black is James Alcorn, right? To, to reflect yes. James Alcorn, who believe he was a former Confederate, I believe. Yes, he was. Which he was showed, a former Confederate. So this is a big a tent coalition, if you will, in Mississippi, <laughs> uh, that, or at least... I guess it goes to show that supporters of Reconstruction had to be very welcoming to pretty much anybody who just wouldn't try and kick them out immediately. Uh, yes. <laughs> and even though Alcorn, you know, also may have been described by the other derisive term, which is a scalawag, mm. um, which is kind of a runty horse, um, as these Southerners who turned their back on the South and aligned themselves with the Republican Party. We can see in Alcorn, again, these people being really strategic 
in thinking about, I think people, especially people like Alcorn, he kind of sees the writing on the wall and he sees this opportunity with the Republican Party. I think in part maybe to bring some change to the South as well, but I think he also knows that he can garner some support because he did fight in the Confederate Army. He was a planter at one point, but he roundly defeated by Ames in 73 largely because Black voters turn out overwhelmingly to support him. And so white Southerners see this as even more evidence of the evils of Negro suffrage and that Ames is working with at best or manipulating at worst African-Americans to support um, this kind of alien government that is the Republican Party. Thinking about this political struggle going on, clearly we we can't lump all of the roughly half of the state that was formerly enslaved into sort of one giant group. And so you can, by all means, talk about differences among Black Mississippians. But uh, thinking about communities of Black Mississippians, the majority of them who had been enslaved prior to, to Reconstruction, what were their economic and political goals What did freedom mean for these people? And then to what extent did they look to the Ames administration and other sort of state or or national agencies to achieve them? Or to what extent did they look to themselves or their immediate neighbors? Yes, I really think the real struggle of Reconstruction is an economic one. Of course, politics are so important and so essential. And these questions about suffrage and civil rights and the role of the federal government and state and what's happening on the local level politically are really important. I really think the real struggle is economic control over labor, over land, over capital. So for African-Americans, issues of land ownership are really important. They get their freedom, they get emancipation after the Civil War, but not really much else. And so for them, you know, they are really looking to the federal government to support their desire or lands for some kind of recompense for these generations of unpaid labor. And so seeing a, a person like Ames as a Republican who already is showing support by appointing African-Americans to political positions, he even has a Black lieutenant governor, I think that some Blacks feel that in supporting him, that support will trickle down or also fold in their desires for land, especially. Of course, they will come to find out through kind of different events that that happened in Mississippi, really tumultuous period in the 1870s, that he perhaps isn't quite the savior that they thought that he was. But yes, I think that African-Americans were really hoping that these kind of political gains would translate into opportunities for them to gain land. And I think they also realized that they could use the little kind of local political leverage that they had by having African-Americans in essential positions like sheriff, like justices of the peace, having Black representations on juries as well, that, that these kinds of positions could support them in their claims against abuses by white planters. 
So for example, even though most African-Americans don't get the land that they hope for, you know, sharecropping really emerges um, in this period because the planters are really land rich, but money poor. And so this idea that African-Americans could share in the profit that comes from their labor in producing you know, cotton and other kinds of foodstuffs uh, on the land. But of course, they find uh, that what happens is that many whites are using sharecropping as another way to enslave African-Americans to the land, to keep them in debt and another kind of perpetual bondage, a kind of quasi-slavery. So I think for Adelbert, I guess, you know, just to kind of sum it up, is that I think that they believe that they can translate the kinds of political gains that the AIMS supports into support for their larger and deeper goals and desire, which is really control over their labor, the opportunity to own land really as the kind of foundation of their citizenship and their freedom dream. Thanks. That makes sense. And especially considering most of these free people, their work experience and lived experience was working the land. And so, of course, if they're going to take care of themselves, it's probably going to be in, in agriculture. And so land ownership would be a key to that dream, as it was mm-hmm. for most Americans in general, as you know, as we as we both tell our students. So in 1868, Mississippi drafted a new constitution, which I happen to be a really big fan of to this day. I wish maybe it just stayed instead of the one that is that is there now, but I'm not a Mississippian. And so this new constitution of 1868 was democratically approved. How much influence did Black Mississippians play in this process? And how far did this new constitution, this post-war constitution, go towards laying a foundation for these goals you just talked about? So, of course, Ames is kind of accused of bringing in Negro domination. And uh, this period is is also kind of known as Black Reconstruction, where you have African-Americans occupying seats in the halls of state, as well as in county and and, and local elected and and appointed positions. And so this constitution really reflects in some ways these hopes for a transformation, a reconstruction, a rebuilding of the South to make it a more equitable place and a place where African-Americans feel that they are living, I guess, like I said, some of their freedom dreams. What are some of the changes the 1868 Constitution made? So the 1868 Constitution was really a radical, progressive move forward for Mississippi. Among some of the provisions of that Constitution was universal male suffrage, voting rights for Black men and white men. They were setting up public school system. There even were some gender equality stuff in there with protection of property rights uh, of women. And so these kinds of changes, as well as other changes afterwards, when you have more African-Americans with seats in the House of Representatives and in the Senate, are really a step forward. And they really kind of show the kind of importance of African-Americans really wanting to transform the South, to really help places like Mississippi 
to fulfill the, those kind of uh, democratic uh, promises. And for a person like Ames, it is an opportunity for him to really short, continue to shore up and build the Republican Party. But of course, all of these different progressive legislation is met negatively by many Democrats and by people who really support the old social order. So when taxes are raised in order to kind of support uh, these schools, it is seen as an extravagant expenditure. The, the specter of social equality and social leveling is brought up by critics. The breakup of plantations that kind of comes after uh, 68, the master class sees it as uh, threats to their authority um, and their power over labor. These kind of growth in public institutions, there's you know, the development of like an asylum for you know, uh, the deaf and the blind. Critics see this as an attack on the work ethic, this building of a kind of social welfare uh, net. Um, also, their interracial marriage is legalized uh, after 68. And this, of course, is also seen as the, the ultimate evidence that African-Americans want social equality and equality you know, with uh, whites, even to the point of you know, marrying white women. So for right. all the gains after 68, it seems like with every step, there is growing resistance to these kind of progressive measures. And I think that one of the points that you were also trying to make, Ian, is that these were advances that did not just benefit African-Americans. So universal male suffrage, for example, the protection of property rights for married women, a public school system, the kind of beginning of some state-supported public institutions, these were far-reaching innovations that really were directed as well at whites, especially non-land-holding, poor, working-class whites. So, you know, Black Reconstruction, even though, you know, it left a bad taste in the mouths of people who really wanted to kind of turn back the progress of African-Americans, Black Reconstruction really had this bold, broad vision of freedom, not just for African-Americans, but the enhancement of freedom and rights for all Mississippians. Speaking of all Mississippians, then, if in defending the gains from the Constitution of 68, which the vast majority of Black Mississippians supported, mm -hmm. if the Republican Party and the, the you know, and then the, the governorship of, of Adelbert Ames in his two different terms represented the, the strongest defense of it, what other partners or allies in this Republican coalition did Black Mississippians have or look for in trying to shore up this progress? My first thought is that African-Americans kind of turned to themselves. Okay. <laughs> so for sure. example, you, you see the growth really of these union and loyal or sometimes called loyal leagues. Mm -hmm. I, I like to call them loyal leagues which, you know, for maybe listeners who don't know, you know, these were these kind of organizations that were meant to support the government, particularly the Republican government, that began in the North, but after the Civil War, they just spread like wildfire in the South, and increasingly African-Americans really latch on to these, these loyalties, these local um, organizations 
you know, they, they share some elements sometimes with secret societies, with, you know, secret handshakes and passwords, but what they really are, so they end up becoming really kind of the largest political organization of African-Americans. I really think the Loyal Leagues jumped into my mind when you asked about allies, right. is that African-Americans use these Loyal Leagues for many different purposes. Of course, some of the most important is to debate you know, political issues, to talk about candidates for the community, including women and children, to come together to talk about the kinds of issues that were important for African-Americans. It, it's kind of, I think it's in the loyal leagues, in the, on the local level, where African-Americans are parsing out and thinking about what they need to secure their freedom, to make it real, and that they are hoping to use there, there are leagues and these influences to to make a you know a stronger, more informed uh, black electorate that will put people into office who can help them affect the kinds of changes that they want. But again, in Mississippi, particularly, every kind of progressive move mm. is met with hostility and suspicion on the part of those people who are not interested in reconstructing the South. And in fact, the Loyal League, some critics, some particular white Democrats, they accuse Albert Ames of using his office to either organize these Loyal Leagues or to support these secret plots for race war, which is really what some whites believe these Loyal Leagues are about, that they are about African-Americans coming together for a violent overthrow of every aspect of what they cherish about Southern society. And these critics really blame Ames as the root cause of the flowering of these organizations. So that's also, you know, of course, minimizing African-Americans' own initiative. But again, it's just a another example of the list of offenses that many white Mississippians are compiling against Ames. It's interesting you mentioned this because that just sounds like a real form of projection where the opponents of, of this new constitutional order, I mean, they organize into groups with names like the White League. And, you know, mm -hmm. Mississippi newspapers are screaming by 1875 that we need to organize along the color line. And of course, this is white Mississippians talking about a race war for the control of their state. And of course, we'll get to that shortly, which makes me ask, though, so to what extent do the Loyal League serve as home defense forces, as particularly Black communities and their, and their allies are targeted by violence, both from the, the Ku Klux Klan, of course, is the most infamous, but then there's these other, these other organizations as well. Yes, I'm actually glad you mentioned that, because I think it's really important to emphasize the kind of roots of Black power, that we see that Black power movement that emerges really kind of takes us full form after the modern civil rights movement of, of the 1960s. But that kind of Black radicalism is present throughout Mississippi history uh, in particular. And the Loyal League, in addition to serving as 
these community institutions, they're, they're, they have, of course, that political aspect. They definitely also have a military aspect. So a number of men who are part of the Loyal League are veterans of the Civil War. And because of the increasing threat of violence that comes after 68, that really ratchets up in 1870 and, the, and into the 70s as we really enter this period of redemption, which I'll you know maybe explain what that is a little bit later. Right. Um, some of these loyal leagues actually have members who muster in public, working with their weapons in view of local whites. And this, of course, they're trying to communicate the message that we will defend ourselves up to the death. So these uh, loyal leagues also post picket around meetings to protect uh, people from you know the incursion of people like the Ku Klux Klan, like white liners, like these other kind of secret paramilitary Confederate organizations, as well as locals. So local sheriffs, merchants, uh, business people, these civic business elites are also part of these efforts to violently crush the momentum of a group uh, like the Loyal Leagues. And so these Loyal Leagues are, uh, in their efforts at self-defense, are really also continue to play a role in the violence that really erupts in Mississippi, particularly after 1870. I'm glad you bring up this radicalism and the fact that, as we should emphasize again, that the state Republican Party was certainly not only made up of, of Black Mississippians. Uh, otherwise, perhaps its agenda might have been somewhat different too. In assessing Adelbert Ames's governorship before the election of 1875, we'll, we'll talk about the the fall of his administration in, in, in a minute, but in assessing how the state party functioned during this reconstruction period, in what ways did the state party and the Ames administration meet and then not meet the expectations of the folks that you have studied? I really see the clear limitations of Ames' governorship. I have to say it has to do with redemption. Right. And this is where I know it's unfair because it's sort of like other than, you know, other than that, Mrs. Lincoln, how was the play? Um, But like he and I do want to obviously we are he's a Mainer. We're not here to statue polish by any means. We're going to get to Ames. Ames is the fall of the Ames administration in, in a moment. But before uh, before the violent overthrow of the Ames administration, like, would you say most of the people you study were were reasonably pleased with how things were going with him and the party? Or did they okay, view Ames and the party as more, as too slow, too hesitant, too dependent on the sort of Alcorn former Confederate wing, you know, that kind of thing? So Ames really was, in many senses, kind of a man without a party. <laughs> so okay. uh, as I mentioned before that, you know, even radical Republicans saw him as radical. So even within the Republican Party in Mississippi, you not only did you have these factions, but you even had some of his supporters who questioned some of his decisions. They questioned, for example, some of his uh, appointments. They wondered about his political ambitions. You know, was he hoping to use the kind of Mississippi governorship as a launching pad? into the U.S. Senate. African-Americans, while they were pleased that he was appointing 
African-Americans to certain political offices, I think that they were less pleased in terms of how effective he was in actually enforcing and bringing to life these provisions were put into motion um, with 1868. And I do have to say, uh, even I have to feel a little sorry, <laughs> sorry for Ames, because he wasn't really, he was really fighting against these incredible odds, whereas he really needed, for example, a strong police force to kind of counter the growing resistance to his administration. There just weren't enough federal troops, for example, uh, for him to use. Even when he tried to reach out to the federal government for help and support, because Republican idealism was waning all across the United States. So not only was it under attack in the South, but many whites in the North and the West were rethinking and reevaluating their commitment to Black civil rights. And so Ames kind of is a man who is kind of battling within his party here at home in Mississippi. And he's also not getting very much support from the federal government as well. So, uh, and, and he's also, I wouldn't say losing favor, but African-Americans who were, I think, a little bit more conciliatory in the beginning, in, you know, in, the, in the 1860s, are you know, beginning to demand and more of him, to push him more by the time we get into the 1870s. So he's a man, I think, dealing with these assaults on all sides. And I have to say that even I can't quite figure out his personality, like, like, like who, who was he? Right. Was he someone really committed to Black civil rights? Or was he really just this self-interested guy? You know, was he a person who was willing to put in um, really inexperienced, uh, unpopular people in appointments? And I'm not just talking about African-Americans, but sure. even whites, because he was advancing his own self-interest as he was setting himself up for a possible future in the federal government. Was he just the man besieged on all sides who wasn't getting the support that he needed to make his vision, you know, into a reality? But he's a really complex figure. And, and I do just want to say, you know, I like that, you know, we've talked about not polishing him as some kind of white savior, but to really see him as a complex, complicated figure who is trying to find a balance between his ideals and his self-interest, who's trying to deal with what he's faced with, but also thinking about the future and how to make a way forward. It's interesting you some of the things you mentioned this way, because to some of your questions, I'm thinking like, well, a bit of everything, right? Like, is he an opportunist or principled? Because he's, he's this golden boy war hero, and he's pretty young mm -hmm. when he gets appointed as military governor. And thinking about critics saying, is he wanting to get elected governor of Mississippi or using it? Like, clearly... He wanted to be a senator and he married, by all accounts, for love, Blanche Butler, the daughter of Ben Butler, who is famous in the South as the military occupier of New Orleans and white Southerners hate him. And he's, it's funny because he himself was an opportunist who genuinely seems to have come out 
at least during the 1860s and 70s, as a real proponent of civil rights. But so Blanche Ames's daughter was the socialite in Washington. She meets Adelbert when he's a senator and they marry. She and he, they hated Mississippi. And so Blanche Butler Ames comes down with him for a time. And she complains that like, oh, Mississippi, lard is its own food group. I hate the food here. Oh, it's so hot. Oh, it's so miserable. All the society ladies hate me. Oh, everything is, is awful. And like he, she didn't like it. He didn't really like it. And so if he had his way, my interpretation is almost that he didn't really want to run for governor initially. And he kind of got drafted into it. And so then resigned his Senate seat to go run for governor, you know, in the full sense in, uh, in 1873. And then, yes, here it is, Mississippi. Obviously, he is far from the worst victim of redemption, but his career kind of tanks as a result of his failure in Mississippi. I got this real John Quincy Adams vibe from him, where he, he's this stubborn guy who does stuff he believes is right, even when it's not popular. And as a result, he's not popular. He was interviewed in the 1890s when most white Americans, even in the North, believe that Reconstruction is a mistake. And he's interviewed by this Northern historian about his time. And he, he just kind of says, well, yeah, it was, we thought it was a good idea. And that the Constitution means what it says. And he didn't apologize. And he didn't really back down. He just said, yes, this is what I did. It was the right thing to do. In that sense, he was this aging relic of an earlier time who didn't give in to the, the fashions of the late 1800s by which most white Americans retreated from this idealism. He did not. So that was why I find him fascinating. And yet, of course, we should really be assessing what he wanted to do and how well he succeeded. He shouldn't just be congratulated for, for wanting nice things. I guess, and I was also just going to you know, mention, you know, maybe a little bit more about how Black legislatures, you know, saw him yeah. James Lynch, the really, you know, accomplished um, uh, legislator, really wanted peace and prosperity. Mm. And, mm -hmm. and he really hoped that Ames would help to achieve that. But even he became a little disillusioned uh, with Ames. And other Black uh, legislatures did too, because when he became governor in 1873, his lieutenant governor was this African-American man named Alexander Davis, who's you know, a bit of a mystery. We don't even know if he was a formerly enslaved person or if he was free. He comes to Mississippi and begins you know, kind of a political career. But many African-American legislatures really supported this other African-American, a man named Hannibal Cap Carter, who was far more accomplished than the man that Ames picked. And who clearly had the support of Black legislators, but Ames chooses this Alexander Davis person who is kind of a mystery. And so I think also too among Black legislators who are trying to understand where they stand with Ames, a decision like this, for example, you know, choosing a far less accomplished and qualified, I would think, say, partner versus a strong, you know, he's known as really intelligent, sharp, and uh, forthright a person like Hannibal Carter. They are just wondering what's going on with him. That's odd. And it would make sense if maybe 
Davis was some sort of, you know, civil war figure or something like that. But maybe if Ames thought he would be pliable or something. So, mm -hmm. okay. So that, so that cost him political capital then, even with his, with his own supporters. Interesting. Did the loyal leaguers generally think that uh, besides his choice of appointments, was Ames being too cautious or conciliatory with former Confederates or opponents of, of greater equality for Black Mississippians, or did they generally give him the benefit of the doubt as the best they could get? Unfortunately for the loyal leagues, we don't have a lot of direct sources. Okay. And some of the sources that we do have, of course, mediated uh, by white. For So, for example, when you have white newspapers reporting things that they overheard going on in loyal league meetings, uh, for example, that's kind of a, a sense of, of how we know the kinds of issues and, and topics that uh, they were discussing. But I think among the loyal leagues, I think it would be safe to say that because the loyal leagues really reflect the local Black communities, that there was a kind of sense of wanting Ames to do more. There was this sense among loyal leaguers, especially if we think of them as really reflections of local Black communities, a growing discontentment with the slow pace of social change and economic change. While, of course, they have you know, legislatures, that doesn't always translate into the kinds of opportunities that African-Americans needed and the protections that they needed um, on the ground. So I think in general, African-Americans cast their lot with Ames because he was certainly the best choice out of what was available to him. But I do think that they wanted him to be uh, more forceful in terms of protecting their economic interests in particular, as well as providing uh, protect protection against the growing threat of violence. That's a good point. And we should just add that for all the, the kind of scaremongering about the time after 1868 from the, the former Confederate perspective of being a time of, quote, you know, Negro domination or whatever, mm -hmm. that the African-Americans never made up in the Mississippi legislature anything like a, the, a percentage of the population of Mississippi they actually comprised. Like they were perfectly willing to vote for white Republicans as well. And, and they could and did. And so it's not like the Mississippi lower or upper house was uh, disproportionately made up of African-American Mississippians. Yes, and I think that's a really great point to make because it is part of that lost cause. What some people, you know, they learn a kind of lost cause narrative of reconstruction where you had these African-Americans thrown into these positions of power that they weren't prepared for, that they were venal and corrupt, and this idea that they somehow dominated these legislatures. Um, and, and that's just not true. So, so, so many of the innovations that Black legislatures were able to bring in Mississippi resulted in them aligning in the, with interests of white uh, legislatures, uh, other Republicans, and, and, you know, so that is how they were able to kind of push through some of these progressive reforms in terms of like education, et cetera, not because they dominated the legislatures, but because they were able to form, you know, coalitions. Yeah. But you're absolutely right. Their numbers never 
<laughs> the numbers in these legislatures never reflected the actual strength of the electorate in the state. So this scaremongering is a good hinge to talk about then because it fed into the violent process of, of reconquest of Mississippi, like other Southern states, at the end of Reconstruction. So that happened during Ames's time as governor, and we can't assess Ames's performance as governor or the experience of people living in Mississippi unless we, we really deal with what the winners of it called redemption. And of course, being elected governor of Mississippi in 1873, I don't think it's a job anybody would really want to be the Republican governor of Mississippi in 1873, uh, in, in the sense of uh, having a, an easy task before you. But so to give us the background, violence against Black Mississippians and their allies really rose in the mid-1870s. And the uh, when Ames was elected governor, kind of organized resistance to small d democratic governance and the Republican administration in Mississippi was really rising. Why was that happening in the mid-1870s? So I would really say that 1873 election was the beginning of the end <laughs> of okay. Reconstruction uh, in Mississippi. Okay. And one of the reasons that you have this heightened violence in the 1870s is because many Southerners are you know, reacting to, from 68 on, to you know, the presence of more African-Americans, the presence of more Republicans in Southern government. And they really launch into this campaign that we historians call redemption where they are really trying to redeem the South for white Southerners. And they're very particular about which white Southerners. But, but definitely one of the things they want to do is to turn back the clock on African-Americans, you know, social, uh, economic, educational, and political progress. And they also want to kind of reset the world, more akin to the antebellum times when you had, you know, the white elites in power. And so they are doing this kind of a two-pronged attack. <laughs> so they're definitely using elections, but of course they're resorting to out, you know, fraud, <laughs> you know, intimidation to keep blacks from the from the polls. But the really most effective part of redemption is the violence. And it is uh, violence against not just African-Americans, but whites as well, people that they see as supportive of the Republican Party, supportive of Black civil rights and, and education, you know, et cetera. And, and no one is immune to this violence. Even high-ranking Black legislatures fall victim to the violence of redemption. And so I, I bring Ames in here to say that his appointees, the presence of African-Americans in elected and appointed positions was like waving a blanket in front of um, the bull, a bull. And uh, so yes. many you know, critics and white Democrats saw it as unspeakable. They used his election as even more fuel to the fire of the need to take back their state. One reason some scholars have given, and I don't know how much stock you put in this, is that, well, also in 1873, there was a, a, a huge depression. And so it led to this economic distress led to a real a loss of interest among a lot of, especially the, the Northern white public 
in what they viewed as almost a foreign land, right, for, you know, white Michiganders and Mainers and et cetera. Whatever was going on in Mississippi seemed far away and they just didn't, they didn't care anymore. They were just getting kind of fed up. And I'm not sure what the panic of 1873 had on Mississippi society per se. Um, I'm not exactly sure how, how, the, what the, how the panic of 1873 was felt in Mississippi, okay. but I would say that I'm sure that it reached into Mississippi since this was, you know, in, in many ways, kind of a global crisis, you know, with Europe uh, and the United States and Mississippi mm-hmm. being one of the top cotton producers would mean that I can mm-hmm. imagine that cotton prices dropped. Um, and I, but I think that, you know, your point about bringing up the Panic of 1873 uh, really hints at how these kinds of economic issues are often sublimated under these other kind of calls for, you know, rights and justice and, mm-hmm. you know, taking back the states. What underlies them are these kind of economic anxieties where people feel that they are losing ground, you know, socially and culturally. And one of the ways that they react is with this white supremacist uh, uh, backlash. And I would say that the 1870s, I think bringing up also up the panic, definitely shores up this, the discussion that we had about, you know, the waning idealism of the North. They're also dealing with scandals you know, with grants and, and, and administration. So so not only does Mississippi, I think, seem like a foreign land, people are, I think people are just exhausted. Um, yes. and, they, and they begin to see it as a failure because the news that's coming out of the South is about all of this violence. And so people, I think, you know, really definitely are like, you know, what's going on? Let's get out of this while we're ahead. Uh, it's obviously not working. And so Adelbert Ames, Really, the test of his administration that happens during redemption reveals the cracks that were there almost from the beginning. The wavering support, even among his own party, even among African Americans, not quite being sure, you know, is, is, is he principled, you know, or is he, you know, um, status seeking, you know, so those kinds of concerns are really explode in in the mid 1870s. I remember when I first learned about this being kind of surprised to learn that among people living outside of the south, especially white Americans living outside of the south that the by the the mid 1870s that this there was this real sense of almost boredom or impatience of sort of oh are you telling me that you people down there still haven't fixed it? Are you saying that there's still, I'm still reading these depressing stories about massacres in Louisiana and poverty and, mm-hmm. and sadness and oppression in Mississippi? Come on, you know, boring. And we still have soldiers down there. So in 1875, this threat of violence really explodes out into the open in an even bigger way surrounding the election of 1875. Many people outside of Mississippi don't know this, but the state has its legislative elections in odd number of years. And so 1875 was this big local election and Ames and his supporters are faced with their, their greatest challenge yet. What happens in 1875? that causes this violence to explode and how does Ames respond? 
1875, the elections, those redeemers, those people who are wanting to re, uh, redeem the South do not want to repeat of what happened in 73 or 68. And so it is, it is really, really bloody. And I do want to mention kind of a precursor of what happens to Ames in 1875, going back a little bit to say 1871. Mm. So during redemption, you have just these outbreaks of violence all over the state. And one place that that happens is in Meridian. So there's this Meridian riot, of course, now we would say massacre, in 1871. And so this is kind of a rehearsal for how we see the ineffectiveness of aims in terms of policing against, you know, redeemers and also protecting, you know, African-Americans. So what's going on in Meridian, there's a reorganized loyal league that's organizing for self-defense against the increasing onslaught of, slot of violence. And there's even rhetoric at this time that there's a Nat Turner, you know, among their myths. So that's one of the reasons I bring up Meridian. Mm -hmm. So Adelbert Ames calls for the appointment, say, of a Black mayor in Meridian. He's trying to bring peace back into uh, that town. Now, in uh, 71, he's a senator, yeah? Right. So he, okay. he calls for the appointment of, yes, so he's a senator who calls for the appointment of a Black uh, mayor in Meridian as a way to tamp down the violence that's going on there. So what really happens in Meridian is that the Loyal League organizes for a self-defense. Um, whites say that there's a Nat Turner amongst their myths. And so they, so whites put the Black leaders on trial. And some of those leaders include Black legislatures, in particular, like Aaron Moore. So Alcorn's response to oh, this the is violence, the governor at the time, Alcorn? The who's the governor at okay. the time, is okay. too little, too late. Gotcha. And so I think that's a lesson for Ames that for, for 1871, he learns, because, because what happens to those Black leaders is even during the trial, it erupts in violence. Onlookers are killed. The uh, defendants, these Black defendants, try to go on the run. They're hunted down, shot and lynched. You know, one of the other organizers is thrown out of the second floor window of the courthouse. His throat is slashed. Wow. So I think for the, 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 the Meridian Massacre of 1871 shows Ames, one, you know, that it's important for him to keep African-Americans and others Republican supporters in these offices, in the sheriff's office, as mayor, you know, in, in these local towns. And he also learns from Alcorn's response, uh, which was too little too late, that he really needs to send outside forces into these local areas. So in 1875, when these elections are, are incredibly bloody, you know, everywhere that you can, uh, that you can imagine, uh, especially in, in Clinton, which is, is very near uh, Jackson, the capital, he calls out the military because he's learned his lesson that he's not going to be able to get much support from local law officials, that he has to call in outsiders. But of course, the problem is there are just not enough forces to really be effective. In addition, the militia actually disarms African-Americans. 
because Ames is also kind of buying into this idea that it's the African-Americans and their kind of martial responses that are ramping up or feeding this frenzy of violence. Wow. So that's all not very happy. The militia's going and it's disarming African-Americans. But of course, that militia isn't enough. He even turns to federal support. Can I ask, the Mississippi militia, was it in 1875, was it biracial or was it was it all white by in 1875? Ah, that's a good point. It was biracial. Okay. <laughs> and so it did include black soldiers. And so when the state militia, with the presence of armed, uniformed black men being part of this kind of policing uh, of whites, that also was okay. enough to throw local whites, make them apoplectic, you know, with okay. anger um, about, you know, the presence of this militia. And so, but this still is just too, he's, he's running the risk of Alcorn, but too little, too late. So he mm. does ask for federal intervention, but of course it wasn't forthcoming. Grant, uh, U.S. Grant even sends him this telegram and he tells him the American people are tired of these outbreaks in the South. And Grant warns him that this is going to spell Republican losses in these states for the upcoming presidential election. So again, I just, I guess I mentioned 1875 to say that even though Ames understood that he needed outside forces to try to, you know, handle what was going on in the ground, it just wasn't happening. And the Mississippi militia also had the kind of counter effect of ramping up resistance and violence by whites locally. And, you know, there was no federal intervention forthcoming. So the 1875 elections really are this kind of faith accompli of the Democrats. They really waved the bloody shirt, blaming things like the Clinton riot and these other kinds of outbreaks as signs of Republican misrule. And uh, of course, as we know, they then impeach Ames and his Lieutenant Governor, uh, Alexander Davis. They, uh, of course, you know, impeach Davis first, the black man first, because right. they want to definitely eradicate any chance that he can assume the governorship. <laughs> oh, even for like five minutes, right. They got to make sure. Right. <laughs> That's right. Right. So they, they, they do him first. And uh, and then I, I don't know if, if you want to, but seeing the writing on the wall, yeah. you know, Ames kind of, kind of brokers this deal um, where he resigns and he leaves Mississippi. He goes, I'm sure his wife is so happy to return uh, back <laughs> to Massachusetts. <laughs> and... Uh, <laughs> And soon after we get, you know, the Mississippi plan, you know, full, you know, right. black voter intimidation, fraud, you know, rampant disenfranchisement, it becomes really a primer for other states to really put the brakes on reconstruction. And so by, you know, 1877, of course, all federal troops are out of Mississippi. And then we begin another long, dark right. <laughs> journey in history for African-Americans and the state of Mississippi yeah. you know, after to that me, 75 election. Yeah. Ugh. I To me, that's always one of the, the hardest things to teach for me, just in, in the sense of things are, are looking up and then are violently, cynically destroyed. 
To me, and I think to many of my students every time I teach this, I think one of the most shocking aspects of the, it really is pretty much, you know, a coup coupled with fraud that the Redeemer reconquest of Mississippi. I mean, yes, there's elections, but it's a farce in Mississippi Delta districts that are Black majorities, they have almost no voters or almost all the votes go Democrat, even though a few years ago it was the reverse. But that the insurrectionists, and this is what they were, they were so open about what they were doing and that they very much advertised these plans out in the open and that everybody could see this coming. And I think that's what makes it, it gives it this added sense of tragedy to me where you read, you see these headlines where I believe in a newspaper in Yazoo, Mississippi, that they run a headline that says, try the rope for how to deal with, with any, any voting Republicans, period. And they say, we've tried politics. It's time to, I quote this headline to my students, to vote the Negro down or knock him down. Either way, the result is the same. We must have a white man's government. And they're just running these open incitements to insurrection all through the fall of 1875 before these elections. And everybody knows this is going to happen. Yeah. It's really brazen. Yes, it is. <laughs> and yes. We, and people, you know, they always think about, you know, the Klan and the right, the Knights of the White Camellia, et cetera. But these were also, so not only, you know, were they brazen, but law officials, you know, the sheriffs, the police, the local leaders of towns are part of this lynching, violence, beating, arson, shooting, driving African-American communities out of particular places. Um, It's, it's, yeah, it's really brazen. Yes. So the last assessment of, of aims for this, you raise a good point that clearly he's asking for federal assistance and it, it by and large doesn't come. And so do you think that when we're a set, you know, when we assess any historical figure, we have to think about what was, you know, realistically possible. And so do you think that Ames and Davis, their administration, had a, a chance of success without federal assistance? Was there a, a plausible counterfactual you could come up with in which they managed to mobilize local defense and actually preserve democracy in Mississippi past 1875? Or does this really depend on outside assistance? Um, yeah, you know, because we have the benefit of 2020. Yeah, yes, yes, yes. <laughs> we see in many ways what, you know, a futile situation that he was in. But I think that, you know, when you talked about why would anybody want to be the governor of Mississippi in 1873, <laughs> um, you know, maybe from his vantage point, he had some optimism. He was still holding out hope for change and transformation in a place like Mississippi. But yeah, I mean, he was fighting a a losing battle. And unfortunately, without federal assistance, I don't think that there was any way that he would have been able to make it. And also hurt by the catch-22 is that because of the lack of political will from the federal government side, right after the Civil War, we're left with, you know, a, a person with a lack of vision like, like President Johnson, that it's almost like the writing was on the wall for Reconstruction. Once African-Americans didn't get land, he returned many former Confederates to their positions of power and wealth, the roots of the undoing of what Ames 
envisioned um, were set in place long before he came governor. And of course, by 1875, a kind of inexorable march <laughs> toward right. a failure of reconstruction. You know, this is just yes. Seems- this is why I believe Andrew Johnson was the worst president in American history, because if there's such a thing as momentum in history, and there's some people have argued, I think kind of convincingly, that many former Confederates were kind of shell-shocked in 1865. You know, the, the infrastructure mm-hmm. of the Confederacy was destroyed. They figured we lost. They were prepared for the worst in their view, right? And then Johnson comes along and says, it's okay, guys, actually, you've got a friend in me and that former Confederates are the real Americans and I don't view African-Americans as citizens and perks them up. My, my sort of personal hobby horse favorite plan for reconstruction, I don't know if you've heard of the plan offered by Thaddeus Stevens, the radical Republican from Pennsylvania. Most Americans now know him as the guy Tommy Lee Jones plays in the movie Lincoln. (laughs) But his plan for Reconstruction was that uh, he wanted to deport all of the leading plantation families. He said, it's a crime that a couple hundred thousand people can hold a nation of millions hostage to their treasonous demands. And he wanted to deport them and distribute all their land to former slaves and and I think to some poor Southern whites and to rebuild the South governed by free people and small landholders, but to permanently remove the pre-Civil War Southern leadership from the American body politic forever. I think that's a great idea. That is my personal, (laughs) I think it would have been amazing. I like to bring it up to my students just in the sense when people Uh, The idea that somebody was suggesting it, because when people talk about what was radical and what was possible, I think, and I'm sure that you you agree, and I'd love to, you know, hear your side of it as well, that sort of talking about what the realm of what people thought was possible in a time like after the Civil War is really important, because sometimes I think 21st century Americans think that well, whatever actually happened was usually the most radical or the, the ex, the outer bounds of people's imagination. And so therefore, whatever happened was probably the best that we could hope for. You know, I I don't think that's true at all. Not that Stevens is the be all and end all of political imagination, but the fact that there was a serious person saying, no, 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 we should do this, I think is something that's important to discuss in terms of the realm of possibilities for a a post-war future in the United States. Yeah, I, um, I, I think that you're right. Even when you think about what Black Republican legislatures hoped for, how they were trying to ensure opportunity and education for not just African-Americans, but all citizens. Yeah, I think that we see there that kind of vision of the possible um, that could have been in a time like Reconstruction. Right. Historians are not prognosticators, and obviously history is not like a cookbook we can just repeat. But that said, what is your takeaway from the defeat of Black Reconstruction in Mississippi? What are your thoughts on the rule of law and political coalitions and, yeah, coercion in responding to violent threats to a democratic government? I think that the lessons of Reconstruction are really applicable to today. (laughs) I think if, if nothing else, Reconstruction in Mississippi teaches us the consequences of not taking bold action to protect the rights and interests of the most vulnerable 
I don't think that we should be surprised in modern times about the kind of backlash against these disenfranchised or underrepresented groups who are calling for a place at the table. I think that the Reconstruction also gives us at least a model of what ineffective political leadership looks like. And so it should be a lesson to us to be on the lookout for weaknesses and the failures of vision among uh, our leaders and a reminder, of course, that we really need to be vigilant in terms of not just elections, but just in political culture, to not just see formal elections as the only way to express your vision of freedom or your thoughts about democracy, but that we have to be really engaged citizens, building coalitions, working with others outside of the ballot box to try to bring about the kind of change and transformation that we want to see. Thank you. To wrap up, everybody should, of course, check out your book, Banking on Freedom, Black Women in U.S. Finance Before the New Deal. But do you have any other forthcoming work that our audience should uh, be aware of? Yes, um, I do. My next book is tentatively titled of the profits of Black capitalism. And so it is a book about Black capitalism, Black enterprise and entrepreneurship before <laughs> Nixon. Okay. So I'm really, I'm kind of looking at the development of Black business and its role politically, economically, socially, and culturally in uh, American society from the end of Reconstruction up until the 1960s, the beginning of the civil rights movement. Oh, that sounds really interesting. I love Madame Walker, but I want to know about the less famous people as well. So this will be, this will be great. And then last question, what is something that somebody else has, has just put out that you think our audience should check out? Ooh, that's hard because I'm reading two books actually. (laughs) But I would say that (laughs) the Volia Glimp knew the women's fight is incredible. And I would say that people should read it because it will illuminate the Civil War (laughs) in a way that probably most people have never seen it or imagined it before. So it's not just about looking at the war through the eyes of women, but it's also just recasting the entire Civil War as what she says, a humanitarian crisis. Hmm. And so when you think of it in that way, you know, how the dimensions, the reach, and the breadth of the war changes. So I think the women's fight is a good one to pick up. Okay, excellent. Thank you so much for that. And thank you so much, Shanette, for joining us. Hopefully we will speak with you again soon. Thanks so much. Thank you so much. That's our show. For links to the books mentioned in this episode, and so that you don't miss out on all the latest excitement, be sure to follow us on Twitter, at Mainly History, or follow us on our new Facebook page. Join us again soon, when we'll be speaking with Tiffany Link of the Maine Historical Society about the British destruction of Falmouth during the Revolutionary War, an attack so notorious it received a mention in the Declaration of Independence. That's next time on Maine history.